That is just right for us to do. <clears throat> to magnify the Lord is the only rational, reasonable, and right thing to do. For us to magnify ourselves or something else, that would not fit. It would not be fitting. It wouldn't have its place. It would be inappropriate. But here we are. We get to go to God's Word now to continue to magnify Him, to lift Him up, make much of Him, hear from Him, walk in His ways. And this morning we're going to be talking about prayer. One of those ways to magnify the Lord. And I hope the Lord will speak to each of us through His Word this morning. In the beginning of a short book on prayer in the Nine Marks book series, uh, John Onwuchekwa says this, if you were to walk into most churches on Sunday, what would you find? You would hear music and singing. It might be loud or sparse. The songs, new or old, yet the basic structure would be almost identical whether you were in Billings, Montana or Atlanta, Georgia. There would be some sort of sermon. It might be topical, brief, and generally lighthearted. Or it might be expositional, long, and generally serious. Depending on the Sunday, you might see a baptism, participate in the Lord's Supper, or engage in corporate scripture reading. But you know what you probably wouldn't see a lot of or participate in? Prayer. I don't mean that no one will talk to God, he goes on, but the prayers will likely be few and a couple of, uh, few, uh, brief and few, and a couple of cursory words as musicians and speakers shuffle on and off stage, they will likely be biblical but vague, focusing on the general promises of God for an undefined subset of people. They will likely be informative but territorial, rarely going beyond the immediate needs of those within earshot. They will likely be emotionally intense, springing forth from hearts of people who really do have an earnest desire to communicate with their God. The thing is, the prayers won't slow down and linger on the glories of God, His attributes, and His character. They won't mediate unhurried, sorry, meditate unhurriedly on His Word. They won't ask hearers to study their own hearts and confess specific sins. They won't ask God for help to do what only God can do, save the lost, feed the hungry, liberate captives, give wisdom to world leaders, fix broken institutions, sustain persecuted Christians. This is a problem. And it seems many churches simply don't realize how little they pray together or how little their prayers reflect the big-heartedness of God. John says, I heard Mark Dever say that we should pray so much in our church gatherings that the non-believers would get bored. We talk too much to a God that they don't believe in. Maybe that's hyperbole, John says, but certainly we, by which I mean we as Christians and church members together, should pray bigger and better and more biblical prayers. And I read these words and I thought of our church and I thought, is our church a praying church? How does Lakeside do when it comes to prayer? Do we pray in a similar way that John is saying here? It was convicting to me personally because you can assess prayer as a church and personally in your own life, can't we? As we prepared to go to winter camp a couple weeks ago, and this was the topic of prayer at camp, and we addressed junior hires and high schoolers alike, I couldn't stop thinking about all the ways that I need to grow personally in my prayer life and how convicted I was the more and more I studied into this topic of prayer. 
and I kept thinking about our church, not just our young people, but all of us, young and old. Where are we at? How do we think and live in this topic of prayer? If you were to take Lakeside and, and, and throw us alongside of the early church in the Bible and see what kind of things were there that were connected and that we're doing well, and we could say, hey, we're commended in this, and maybe we're uh, falling short in this, you could look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, and see that they, even at the beginning, when there were 3,000 souls added to the church, were devoting themselves to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They continually went to the one who was with them, not but months before, before he ascended, and they continued to speak to him in prayer. And when they struggled with the extent of their ministry that had developed and with rapid growth, all these things that came up that they needed to start prioritizing how to lead the church well, the leaders in the church said in Acts 6-4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is what caught me. And this has got me to think, I wonder if people would notice Lakeside Bible Church for our prayer. I wonder if people would notice us for the way that we pray and the way that we're devoted to prayer. I am not concerned that people will look at our church and say, I wonder if they're devoted to preaching. I believe that they would see that. I am concerned that if someone were to look at our church and say, are they devoted to prayer? I'm not sure what they would think. And we care mostly what God thinks, and so that's why we're going to his word, and we're going to ask the Lord to show us if there's ways that we need to personally grow, or as a church, local church, here to grow, that we would do whatever it takes to make the changes necessary. As a pastor, like one of these leaders here early in Acts, I'm thinking about ways that our church can grow. And we can be more devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Prayer and the preaching of the word. Prayer and the teaching of the word. Prayer and the counseling with the word. Prayer and encouragement over the scriptures. Prayer and the scriptures being read out for us all to hear. That's my heart and my desire. But we're going to a passage that I think is going to be very helpful for all of us this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Go there in your... Bibles and open up there. I have three reasons here from our text in Luke eleven five to 13. Three reasons Jesus gives for us to pray. That we might pray in order for us to, in, uh, to be encouraged and emboldened to come before God with our requests. What I want to do first of all is show you the context so that you can understand what has been going on just in the few, first four verses of this chapter. Now look at Luke eleven one. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. We'll pause there. We're going to get to our text in just a second. But just step back and look at verse 1 and verses 2 to 4. And what do we see here? We see two things. We see, first of all, the model prayer, the person who prays. And you see the model prayer, how we should pray, or along the lines of how we should pray. So Jesus was the model prayer 
It was his regular practice to to pray, and he was in prayer often. And this is one of those verses that shows and kind of documents that Jesus was praying in a certain place. This wasn't just to say that, oh, Jesus was praying because he's always praying. This was to say Jesus was praying because he went out to pray at a particular place, a particular time, for particular reasons and purposes. And when he finished, not any more than he was done, but that when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. John the Baptist, that is, and John the Baptist went before Jesus, so for them to see John's disciples and his followers following him as they were going to follow Christ, they wanted to learn to pray like John's disciples were, and so Jesus teaches them along these lines the model prayer. The model prayer, and this is a repeat, and really it came up first in Matthew chapter 6, but here he repeats it, the content of the prayer, to teach them along the lines of how to pray. So Luke 11 already starts off very strong with the topic of prayer, Jesus being the model prayer and giving the model prayer, and leads us to our text. If you were to just take a glance back for a quick second and skip a rock, as it were, across the the book of Luke up into chapter 11, you'll see that Jesus continued to pray all throughout his life and his public ministry. Chapter 3, verse 21, was the first time that was recorded that Jesus prayed, When it says this, that uh, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. You see in chapter 5, verse 16, after his ministry had launched and started, and he was continuing to uh, preach the gospel of the kingdom, and he was healing people, and people were coming to him because he was healing many. In fact, he was healing all that were coming to him. There wasn't a one that came to him that he could not heal. There were people coming to him who were demon-possessed, and he was casting them out. He had authority, and the word was getting out, and people came to him. And day after day, people were pressing all around him. Crowds were coming around him to get what he was giving. And you see in chapter 5, verse 16, he said, But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. But he would withdraw. What, was he a shy person? Is that what this is about? Were people making him frustrated and angry and he needed some space to collect himself? Uh, Was this something that he needed to kind of come up with a better plan about how to, you know, go with resources back at the crowds and make them love him more? No, this was all about him going to the Father in prayer in desolate places where people were not at. Chapter 6, verse 12 In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. All night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. It was a big task he had ahead of him to call out the twelve that were going to be the ones that he discipled and that were going to be their teaching, their authority, or his authority. He was going to transfer to them, and they were going to be the foundation of the church here, him being the cornerstone. And he prayed all night, Lord, give me direction. Lord, help me with this. This was the pattern of Jesus in his ministry. Chapter 9, verse 28, you see him praying again. And this is when, <clears throat> this is when he is transfigured before Peter, John, and James. He went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So at his baptism, at his transfiguration, if you were to go forward further, you'll see at his moment of of intense suffering and agonizing pain, knowing that he was going to bear the weight of the world 
and our sin on him. He was praying in the garden, and as he was hanging on the cross at his crucifixion, he is still praying. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Father, receive my spirit. He prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place in chapter 11. Jesus practiced what he preached. He was not a hypocrite. And his life was the perfect example of all of the commands of Scripture about how to pray. If you go, how do I pray rightly? How do I pray in a way that God is pleased with? How do I pray to where I make sure I cover every command in Scripture, catching them all? I would tell you, follow the example, the model of Christ and the way that he prayed. Withdrawing often from the notifications, the devices and screens, the screams and whines, uh, all the things that could clamor for your attention and find time, make time, utilize your time and your life in such a way that you regularly go to God so that your mind is his mind. You're not going about your life in your strength, but in his. Jesus did this. How much more so should we? Now, he is going to uh, go into this, and I want to I give you those three compelling reasons why we should go to him. The, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. He teaches them to pray, and he gives them something uh, here in our text that I'm hoping we will be compelled to be a praying church, a praying people, and things will be different if we are not that now. Let's look at our passage now. Luke eleven five, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask. And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, there is actually some humor and creativity, poetry, uh, and a lot here. And I want to break this down so you can see where Jesus is going. So, in your outline, uh, the first reason Jesus gives for us to pray and how to pray is with a parable. God will rise, go to him. So he starts off with a parable. Look at verses 5 to 8 again. And you need to understand kind of the lay of the land as most parables sometimes can get a little confusing if you don't get the characters right or the people right or the situation right. So here are the three different uh, you know, parties involved. There is a journeyer, someone who's on a journey and he arrives at the end of his journey. Maybe things didn't go as he planned. Maybe he had planned to arrive a little bit earlier, but he's arriving in the middle of the night, and it's late, 
and as most people would journey or travel in this area in Judea or Jerusalem, outer Jerusalem, this would be a place, or whether they were up in, in the north, even in Galilee, this would be a place where it would have been hot, dry, and, and not many resources available to them naturally for them to be able to refresh themselves. So at the end of a long journey, you can tell they're in need. They need to rest, feet washed, tummies filled, rest somewhere. So they come. Here comes the journey, journeyer. Now, that's the one party. The second party is the friend of the house that the journeyer came to. And that person is there, going to to take him in and uh, provide these things for him. He doesn't have those things. So he goes then to the third party. The third party is the house next door, the neighbor. And he goes to him, friend, please give me the bread for this person who came to my house. So if you can kind of understand those three different parties, those different um, situations going on, could be families each, um, you'll understand this a little bit better. But you need to understand culture as well. The culture of the time, like I was already talking about, the geography of the land and some of the needs that way. Um, there weren't uh, you know, vending machines or tw- 24-hour uh, you know, places to go grab food and drive-throughs, Uber Eats, uh, curbside, H-E-B, thank you, uh, or anything like that. It was very complicated to get food. And so when you needed food, um, there weren't shops open, bakeries open in the middle of the night. Nobody was open. Everybody was closed. Culturally, also, uh, you had to be a good host if someone came to your door, someone came to your house. If you turned someone away and said, I can't accommodate you, it would be a shameful thing. You would be looked at in the community as someone who did something shameful if you didn't provide hospitality to the person in need. That's how the community worked. We think that we're a tight community here in the South, and uh, you know we're all caring for everyone, and you know hurricane comes, we're going to help each other out, right? Uh, and there's, there's a beauty to that and a, a, a cool thing to see there. But how much more so in this culture? They were dependent on each other, and especially in times of need. And so this is really important for them to be hospitable when someone was in need in the community. The community would all come together to help. Also, as you kind of think about what's going on in the house of the one that the friend goes to to ask in the third party there, most homes were not, you know, three and two, you know, you got bed and bath, you know, all this. Oh, we got a half bath over here and this over there. We got doors, walls, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, it's pretty simple. Pretty simple. One big house, all, everything in the middle. It's all just kind of open to itself. And so the bed would most likely be in the corner or somewhere off to the side. The kitchen and all the other things that would be needed for making food and meals and everything would be like not far from there. And so you'd just be kind of, you know, all, all together, uh, not able to retreat to a master bedroom or something. And so this was also helpful for us to understand. Um, but you also have to understand the doors, too. So to keep people out at night and to sleep safely and to not be attacked or robbed or whatever, the doors were typically guarded by a large uh, iron piece of iron or metal through rings or, or wood slid through uh, holes. And to unlock a door at night or at any time would be very loud, right? Clang, 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 clang as it's going sliding through. And so you can kind of picture how loud this would be for someone to just kind of try to open the door quietly when the family is sleeping. And he's asking to borrow three loaves. This would not be an unreasonable ask, but it would be something that would definitely have taken care of the traveler. 
Uh, and if you're a family and you know this, you've had little kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, when, I, when our daughter was young and she was sleeping, she was not a good sleeper. Um, it's like she was always so mad when she woke up. And we're kind of like, don't, don't we love you, child? Um, but, but she would take her naps, you know, throughout the day. And then, uh, you know, she always seemed to kind of short the naps. You know, it's kind of like, oh, this, this, hour, this one should be about an hour and a half or two hours here. here. But 45 minutes into it, she's and you're like, oh, gee, like, that's not nearly enough. Why are you up, child? Uh, and so we try to put her back to bed and help her sleep and try to just, you know, not fall asleep <laughs> with her all the time. But that was just customary for us. And so, you know, you could expect the person soliciting to come door to door, and they always seem to find the time when your child's napping to come sell you something. <laughs> and what do they do? They ring the doorbell. That's pretty customary, right? Oh, when you ring that doorbell and your child wakes up, you answer the door with a bat. You're like, get out of here, buddy. You're like, you woke up my child. Um, and, uh, and, you, and you go kind of monster on him a little bit. Um, and, and you send him away. What, you know, what are you, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness? You know, here's your brochure. Get out of here. You know, and, uh, and you go take care of your child, right? You know, you know that. I even do that now. My daughter's almost 13. I try to put her to bed sometimes and you know, kind of like uh, pray with her, sing. I don't sing very well, but uh, I don't know if that's keeping her up. But, uh, but you know, try to just help her kind of calm down at night. And she typically will kind of lay on, on my arm or something. But as soon as she falls asleep, I should say, as soon as I wake back up, uh, I usually fall asleep first. Uh, and I try to like slide my arm out from underneath her neck. Sometimes I think I just, oh, just go real fast. You know, that would help. But I don't want to break her neck. So, so I kind of, you know, go slow, kind of, you know, sneak out of the bed. The bed, why, why is it so creaky? Uh, it's probably because I'm 250 pounds. Uh, you know, and then I try to, you know, sneak out of the room. And, you know, you make all this noise. And then you hear, oh, Dad, one more song. <laughs> right? So you guys know this. Your families, you, you've lived it or you haven't yet. And it's a joy <laughs> to do this. But late night visitor, middle of the night. This isn't kind of like, oh, we just tucked them in. They're, they're, they're going to bed. But it's okay. We just had something on the pot here. You come on in and get some. No, it was middle of the night. Everybody went to bed when the sun went down. Right? They didn't have daylight savings. I don't even know why we do. Uh, but you know, they're, they're going to bed. Okay, middle of the night, everybody was deep in sleep. So this is a pickle. It's a pickle for the guy in between. Because if he told the person who journeyed, I'm sorry, I don't have food. You're just going to have to go hungry. That would be a shameful thing for him. But then if he goes over here and wakes up this guy, his neighbor, in the middle of the night, then he's going to wake up his whole family and he's going to make him angry with him. And so he is in a tight spot. That's a pickle to be in culturally and where he's at trying to not be someone who is not a neighbor to the one in need. And so you're kind of trying to consider what is going on here, uh, trying to look at this, ran this man. He's got a real problem and he's trying to figure out the solution. Now, verse 8 is the point of the parable. He says, it is not because he is his friend that he will wake him up. He doesn't go to his door and whisper in and say, hey, friend, it's me. I need some food. And then the guy in there kind of goes, oh, yeah, that's my friend. That's right. I'll get up. Ah. You know, no, he actually says that in verse 8. He's not even basing it off his friendship. Um, he says, but why does he actually give up, get up and give him what he needs? It's because of his impudence. Impudence. It's an interesting word, but really the whole point of the parable, uh, these verses, hinges on this word. This word is two Greek words brought together, if you were to look at it in its orig original language, impudence, uh, and it is the concept of boldness and shamelessness together. Boldness and shamelessness together. One English translation, the NIV, translates it boldness, so it's just mostly right. 
there. NAS translates it persistence, like persistently coming. KJV, the King James Version, is importunity. I like that word. Uh, the Greek, though, it gives a little bit more of a sense of that, that shame of coming the way that you do. It doesn't necessarily emphasize the persistence or repetition. It's more highlighting the nerve that he would have asked like this. Oh, the gall that you would do this. The audacity that you would choose to do this, that you would ask in this way. That's what this is getting to. But that impudence with which he came in the middle of the night, knowing he was going to wake up everybody and it was going to cause a big scene, because he came in the way that he did, that person got up knowing, this must be serious, and I will answer and attend to his need. The prayers that Jesus gives up and the way that he models prayer for us are tied to this passage based off of verse 8. How does this analogy, this parable, teach us to pray? Because we know Jesus is teaching us to pray. He's teaching his disciples to pray. He's teaching us to go to God boldly and shamelessly. Go to him like that neighbor went next door for the bread. You think, well, this seems to be a little odd why he would set this analogy up, this parable up. Why the connection that it seems like the guy in bed doesn't seem very willing to get up. And if God is not willing to get up, what's the deal there? And No, he's building the argument to say, that this is how we should go to him because he will give to you if you go in this way. He's building a sense of assurance in us that we know that he will respond if we go to him in this way. So we need to learn, well, what would keep me back? What would be shameless about this? Why would this be so bold that I would go to God in prayer? Well, the fact is we are not God. We're not equal to God. He's not someone just next door where we can say, hey, God, give me a... No, he's our creator and we are the creatures. What is man that you would think of him? And not only that, but here we are in a fallen, cursed earth. And here he is, the blessed one, where he is holy, holy, holy in heaven. And here we come from earth in these bodies, stained and tainted by sin. And we go to his throne and ask him for things. That's kind of a, that's a bold move to do that. Do you even know that you're welcome there at his throne? In the Old Testament, if somebody went to a throne of a king and they were not invited, they were killed. The audacity that you would try to talk to God. And yet the parable says that's exactly what you should do. Go to him boldly, shamelessly. Let me help you out. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, listen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. Our confidence to go to God boldly is not in our own ability. It's not in our own achievement. It's not in our own righteousness it's not in our own ability to put off the bad things and put on the good things to do a little bit better than we've done that's wrong and come to him and say, I think you'll hear me now because I've been trying to live good. No, don't come that way. 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's the only way that you're welcome there. That's the only way that you can come confidently and know that he'll listen and that he will grant. Is if you come by the blood of Jesus. This means that Jesus died for you so that you wouldn't die in his presence if you tried to come to him on your own. So when you come on the confidence of the work of Jesus dying in your place so that you might live eternally, you can come with confidence into the holy places as one who is forgiven. Hebrews 10, he says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. <laughs> you should draw near to him. Because you can. Before, you couldn't. And so you wouldn't. But now, because of Christ's work on your behalf at the cross, your sins being completely atoned for and paid for, no, no other debt remaining, paid in full, it is finished from the cross for you. You now can come into the holy places of God through prayer by the blood of Jesus. And you're welcome there. And all the audacity that you would come to him were it not for Jesus Christ. Well, he also has something more than a parable. He has some poetry. That's your second point. So not only with a parable, but the second point with poetry. God will answer, A-S-K, him. Ask him. Go ahead and give one more click there, Jacob. As you can see here, he's not done with this point, and he's going to use another method. Jesus uses another method to teach. Maybe this will help you a little bit more. It's more direct, not just a, a parable. In verse 9, he says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Verse 10, it basically reaffirms the certainty, the assurance you can have that God will answer your prayers. So A-S-K conveniently spells ask, um, and it is ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. God will answer. He will answer. This is kind of like a, a, a one, two, three quick word picture to compel you further to bring your requests to God and to not delay, to not look another way, to not depend on another way. And so in this poetic form, the way he works these, these commands here, we should also be moved to come to him. There is great assurance here. These are commands, so this means that if you don't ask, if you don't seek, and if you don't knock, you are in disobedience. If you don't pray, you are in disobedience. If you have need and you don't go to God about those needs, you are in disobedience. But when you are in need, which is every time, and you go to God, you are in, obedient, you are in, in obedience to him. Ask, and it will be given. This is an invitation to pray. Ask, and it will be given. You have the invitation. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where uh, somebody was talking about an event, a wedding, or a party, a uh, sleepover, you know, whatever it was, and you didn't get the invite you know, to the birthday party. You didn't get the invite to the retirement party, and you're kind of like, oh, maybe it's in my junk mail. Surely they sent it here. It's probably just in my junk. No. I'm in 2017, still going back, not in the junk mail either. And, uh, and you're like, hey, that's cool. I didn't really know him that well. I mean, there was that one. I mean, wait, hold on. Wait, why didn't they invite? And you feel a little bit left out. Yeah. 
Not so with God. You have been invited. And so ask. That's this invitation here. Receive it. You're welcome. He says, seek and you will find. Seeking is a pursuit of God. Seek God. Look for him. He will, he will reveal himself to you. You will find him. He will make known to you who he is and what his will is for your life. So seek him. Now, I just have one thing to say on this. This verb, seek, is also used by Luke later in Luke 13, 24. And it sounds eerily similar to the parable that we just read. So I wanted to read this for you. Luke 13, 24. Strive, Jesus says, to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. There it is. Seek to enter, but they will not be able. Not be able? Okay, this seems like a different situation than the situation we're talking about. You're right. Look at verse 25. He says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Some people pray and pray and pray, but they're knocking and knocking and knocking on a door that has not been opened to them. And you need to understand from a passage like this that if you're welcome inside the household, it's because it was opened from the inside to you. God making a way for you to go to him. That's how you get in. That's how the door becomes unlocked to you. You don't find the key outside of God's house and then show him, I worked hard for it, I searched long for it, I found it, now click, clack, clink, I'm in, I'm able to come in. No, you beg for mercy. God, would you save my soul? Would you pardon all my sin? Would you allow me to come humbly on Christ's righteousness alone by the blood of Jesus? That's the only thing that I say. Please, you're begging him for mercy. And out of the kind intention of his will, he unlocks the door to those who are his. And he allows you to come in. The people that were talked about in Luke 13 are the people who think that they are saved just because they've been around things that are like God. Well, weren't we here? Weren't we there? Did we not pray this way? Did we not do these things? Why wouldn't you let us in based off of the things that we did? Why wouldn't you let us in based off of these things? He says, I never knew you. And that just saddens my heart so much. It makes me wonder that in the South, in the Bible Belt, where there's so much familiarity about God, that people probably in our church and in this room, you know about God, but you don't know God. And those are, those are two very different things. Either the door is locked or it is opened. You could have all kinds of Bible knowledge. You could pray all kinds of prayer. You could go to all kinds of mission trips and teach all kinds of classroom, you know, study material for children or do all kinds of religious activity. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are still on the outside of the kingdom of God. And your prayers are worthless. And you're deceived into thinking that they're worth something. But 
if the door has been opened to you through Jesus Christ and by faith and repentance of your old life and you walk by faith in Jesus Christ and by the blood of him alone and that is your assurance, not yourself, but him. You are welcome in the household of God. The door has been opened to you and every request, the father of that household listens to you because you come in Jesus and Jesus is his favorite and his only son. You can be sons and daughters, not by what you do, but because of what Jesus has done. And by your union with him, if you come in Jesus' name, you pray in Jesus' name, and you understand what that means, that my prayer would not go to you. It would just bounce off the door if I prayed in my name for my things, the things that I want. But I'm done living for Kyle. I'm living for Christ. And so you come and you come and you come. You knock and you knock and you knock. And he will continue to answer because the door has been opened from the inside. And you have been invited in by God's grace to know him and to be in relationship with him through his son. Now, you might get hung up on these verses and say, well, ask and it will be given to you back in our text. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Well, what kind of things do I ask, seek, knock for? You need to understand the things to ask are the things that please God. And he's already taught on that in the model prayer. You don't start with, give us my daily, give us my, give us my. But it's a start with, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And in Matthew, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You start with the things of God. Don't start with the things of you. If you start with the things of you, all your prayers are just like loaded up with your interests your desires, your wishes, your dreams, that could be an indication that you are not a child of God. You're not born again. You haven't received a new heart. You're still functioning with the old law written on your hearts that's condemning you. You haven't got the the new heart that God has given to you where his law is there. And it is teaching you, showing you the things to ask for. Paul picks this up later in Ephesians 6.18. He says, praying at all times in the spirit. That's the operative statement there. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. That means God please supply to me my needs. Supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So Paul's hitting the same thing that Jesus was getting at. Don't pray your interests. Don't pray your things. Pray his things. Pray the things that are important to him. The things that he desires Things that are having to do with his mission, his will, his word, his kingdom. Not selfishly your will, your desires, your mission in life in your kingdom. He says praying at all times in the spirit. He's going to mention the Holy Spirit in just a minute here. But this is you going to God's word saying, God, teach me the things of you and which things to pray. You know what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures so that the words that we have, we know are from God. That's because the Holy Spirit worked in those authors at those times to bring us what we have here. The Holy Spirit was working in that. And when we come to the scriptures and we're blind and we're in our unbelief still, these things don't make sense to us. Just a bunch of babble. But when we're made new and the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us alive, then we read this stuff and we go, this is true. This totally describes my situation. This describes the world. This describes my life. This describes his life, her situation. And the Holy Spirit is showing you that this is the book of life. This is the book of truth. 
And he confirms that those things are true. You know what the Holy Spirit also does? When you study the word and you desire to walk in it and you pray according to God's word, he gives you the strength and the ability and the knowledge and the wisdom and the guidance to walk in it. The Holy Spirit's doing all of these things. Most importantly, the Holy Spirit's pointing you to Jesus Christ as the only way to be able to know truth and walk in truth. So when it says praying at all times in the Spirit, you need to understand what that means and how to do that. So you ask, seek, and knock for the things that God is interested in, and you need to have assurance that he will give you those things. Because that's like speaking God's language to him. Don't speak in your language, which is unintelligible to God. The things that you want, speak the things that God wants. Your, your prayers will change because you're reading the word continually. And it's washing over your mind and heart. And it's purging out the things that you prayed for before that you didn't need to. Or you're praying for someone's salvation, but you're getting angry that they're not saved. That's because you're wanting it in a timetable and in a way that you want rather than a way that God wants. You're desiring something for your kids and you think that it's good, but it turns bad because you desire it in a way that's for you and your interests, your reputation, the way that people think of you. That became about your kingdom. Keep praying for your kids according to his kingdom, his way, his will, his glory. And when you learn to pray those things, you can have assurance that he will answer because this is what he wants. He's revealed it to you. So learn to pray according to the word because the Holy Spirit is working in that way for those things. And finally, he closes with a picture. So he went from a parable to some poetry and now a picture. You, you see what Jesus is doing here, right? He really wants you to get the point to pray. If you're not stirred up by this sermon, by these teachings of Jesus to go to, to be with him, to talk with him, to retreat to him, go to desolate places and talk to him, to take all your burdens, your supplications, your prayers to him, and you're sitting there here hearing these words and going kind of like Jesus and you're like unaffected, unmoved, sitting there, complacent, comfortable, that's not a good sign. You should read these things and just go, this is so cool that I can come into the household of God and talk to the Father in the Son. So here's a picture. I think this is a little bit funny. And this is one of those times that you read and you just kind of go, did, did he mean this? Like, what, what's going on here? A little bit bizarre. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? <laughs> a fish, it makes sense. That was common. It was for food. That's a need. You know, instead, God gives boing, a serpent, right? Have you ever opened one of those tubes? You kind of think it's going to be something inside. It's one thing, and you open the top of it, and it's this little springed out snake, and it comes out. <laughs> like, joke's on you, you know, ha ha. Uh, and, and, and then the same, he does it again here. He says, not, not a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Daddy, could I have an egg? Here's a scorpion. You know, like, why, why would you do that? The fathers don't want to endanger their kids when they're in need. When they're in need, they want to help their kids. They want to help them. They want to give them what they need. Not scorpion bites and serpent bites. They want to help them with what they need. I did play a little trick on my daughter the other day because we don't like let her drink soda a ton, but sometimes we'll let her at times. And one night she was pushing the limit. She's like, Dad, can I have a Sprite? Can I have a Sprite? I'm like, ah, oh, she always asks for Sprite. I'm like, you know what? I have some LaCroix. That's lime and lemon. Let me see if she notices the difference. <laughs> so I poured her a little bit of LaCroix and handed it to her and we all sat down to dinner. I felt like a really bad dad. Uh, but anyway, she starts to drink. Goes, Ugh, what is this? <laughs> 
It's not Sprite. I'm sorry. It's LaCroix. Uh, and so I just I got the you know, kick out of it and stuff. So she didn't so much. I did give her the Sprite. Um, but uh, <laughs> I just think, like, you know, when you're a father, if you're not a jokester all the time, um, pulling, pulling fast ones on your kids, like, you care for your kids. You want what they need. She didn't need a Sprite. But you want what your kids need. They're looking to the needs of their kids and desiring to give that to them. Now, he says this in verse 13. Listen loud and clear. This is really important. He closes it with this. He says, if you then who are evil, he's saying all fathers compared to the heavenly father are practically evil. Like this is just like, it's natural to you. If you're any kind of dad, you know this, how this works. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's building an argument here. He's saying, oh, just watch, just look. Look into every household, look into every need. A kid comes always, dad, can I? Dad, can I? Dad, help me. Dad, I'm hurting. And the father keeps helping, keeps helping, keeps helping. You've got a heavenly father who does all good things for his children, sees you come in the name of his son, covered in the blood of Jesus that you're forgiven and clean, and you come to him and ask him for something that you need? He will grant it to you. He will answer your prayer. We just need to learn to ask the things that he tells us to ask and his will. You come to him and ask for bread and he says, because he gives us the Holy Spirit, here's the bakery. You come to him and ask him for guidance and he says, I'm going to give you the guide himself. You come to him and and ask for the buck, and he gives the bank, spiritually speaking. Not a prosperity teacher, I promise. (laughs) You come to him for blessing. He blesses you with the blessed, the one who is eternally blessed. He says, he, he gives you much more than you even know that you need. The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is so good. This is so good. And we need to understand what we are doing here when we're coming to God and making our requests known to him. God will give. Ask him. When he gives the Holy Spirit, I just love that he says that. Because at this point in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Spirit had not come into the church in Acts 2 yet. But that's something that Luke does write about in the book of Acts. And when the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the people in the church, they are able to go about and live for Jesus Christ with boldness. And they continually look to Christ and they're martyred for their, for their Savior. And they do things and proclaim things that they weren't able to before because they now have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. So when we come to God Better for us to ask, God, would you lead me by your Holy Spirit, your spirit of truth, than to ask for material things or selfish things or things that we think make sense in our timeline, in our way. And when you submit your life to Christ and say, lead me, and the Spirit leads you and you're not following the flesh and their sinful impulses, you have everything that you need and so much more. And you learn to be more grateful instead of complaining and you see all that God is doing and you go I this is hard I asked for this but I know that he didn't give me a scorpion I know that he didn't throw a snake at me 
I know that he is giving me good things, even if I have to wait longer for this or trust him more for that. He is a good God, and he is within me. He is walking with me. So if someone were to walk into our church, would they find us praying? If they walked into our bedroom at night or day, morning, would they find us praying? If they came into the desolate places that we go to, would we be there? If they come to our church gatherings midweek, would they find us praying? If they heard our innermost thoughts, would they be prayers? Um, On the back of your sheet there, I've given you something that I handed out at our camp, and it was to help the kids with some kind of personal prayer plan to know how to kind of begin to walk through and think through uh, prayer. I think the next slide uh, has an image. Now, you can all read that, right? I'm just kidding. I know you can't. Um, But uh, this is mine and how I've kind of filled mine out. And I commend it to you as just like potentially a tool to help jumpstart your prayer life a little bit more. Uh, I asked my dad a while ago when I was young, Dad, how do you pray? And I wanted to pray like him. And he said, just kind of pick something each day that you want to really focus on and, and stretch those things. I find seven things for the week. And so that way, you're, every week, you're praying about things that you're not trying to overlook or miss. And, and so I've picked, based off of my life, Uh, what seems to be uh, topics of each day that fit and make the most sense for those days. Um, So I pray for the church on Sunday, the lost on Monday, uh, the pastors on Tuesday, the youth and young adults on Wednesday, the family, my family on Thursday, our our young adults and, and many servants in our church on Friday, and then the world on Saturday. And so I've just kind of picked those topics, and then underneath each of those, I've kind of subcategorized them and kind of thought of different people, names, ways to think and pray about those things, to be a more faithful prayer. And I'm just wanting my life to follow the life of Christ. I hope we're a praying church, a praying people that God is pleased with, so that when he returns, when the Son of Man comes, that he will find faith on earth. Let me pray, and we'll sing to close out. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for teaching us with your life of prayer, and thank you for teaching us with your words. You have been very clear about a model prayer and how we should pray along, along the lines that you have set forth in the scriptures. Help us to follow suit. Help us to pray along those lines, to pray in that way and not our own. And you've, you've compelled us in many different ways this morning, to pray. And Lord, may we be compelled most of all by the fact that we could not come to you unless if we were true sons and daughters. And the only way that we could become true sons and daughters, welcome in your household, known by name, and welcome face-to-face with you as our Father, is if we've come in Jesus Christ. He is our all. Your Spirit makes that clear to us. We want to live for Jesus Christ, his name, his reputation, his kingdom, his renown, his gospel, his work at the cross, his power over death, his love for us, which never fails. Lord, may we be a praying church that just adores Jesus Christ and comes to you in no other confidence but in his blood alone. In Jesus' name, amen.